following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Good morning. Lovely day, lovely weather, love living in Chiang Mai. I have a word of consolation, though. Uh, This is my theory. Like, I can't even see the end of the room because it's so hazy in here. Here's my theory. I think, you know, there's all talk about air filters and everything, but like I think, you know, when we breathe the air in, we kind of filter it. So being in a room full of people, we're just, you know, breathing out clean air for each other. So there you go. It's good you're in church. Best place to be. Sounds good to me. I don't know if it's true. All right, we're looking in Leviticus chapter 24 and 25 this morning. Uh, two kind of large blocks of scripture. Uh, again, I'm not going to read all of it um, as we're just uh, kind of surveying, but I would like to read uh, chapter 24, verses 10 through 20. So if you want to follow along, uh, chapter 24, verses 10 through 20. Now, an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shalomith, and the, the daughter of Debri, of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name, uh, who, when he blasphemes the name shall be put to death. Whenever, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. For if anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given, a person shall be given to him. All right. Uh, these two chapters, a um, lot of uh, information, and we'll talk a little bit about this this narrative account, one of the few stories in the book of Leviticus, but it's a reminder that uh, that uh, Moses was was writing this at live time, right? So he's getting these instructions from God, and then these events came up, and uh, this particular event probably took place chronologically as 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 Moses was writing this, and so it gets recorded, and it's relevant because it raises the issue: What do you do with those who are wrongdoers, who are lawbreakers. Um, uh, then he goes on in the next chapter. In the previous chapter here last week, he was talking about all the great festivals. Uh, the next chapter continues on with uh, the year of Jubilee and the, the Sabbath year. So it really fits in this theme of, uh, of festivals and celebrations, kind of their calendar. Right in the middle of it, you have this this story, this account of this guy who blasphemes the name of God. And they might seem uh, terribly unrelated and random, and it's like, how are we going to stitch these things together? Uh, but as, as you look closer, um, 
it really does deal, both of these chapters and both these topics really deal with big social issues that, that the people of Israel as a nation would have to deal with. Uh, crime or wrongdoing on one hand is always a part of every culture and society. And also, as we look at the next chapter, it, it really um, addresses the, the social issue of poverty. What were they as a nation going to do to deal with poverty and with poor people in their midst? And how could they um, arrange their, their society to uh, reduce or minimize the impact of poverty in their nation? Um, so we're going to kind of tie it together with those two themes, dealing with kind of the social issues of justice toward wrongdoers and justice towards uh, the poor. Um, but of course, uh, this worked for them because they were creating a nation, right? And so these things that are written or recorded and talked about become national policy. And so it works for them as a nation if they had implemented, there's some doubt whether they actually implemented all of it as God instructed. But, um, but what do we do as Christians? You know, most of us are not writing laws for nations, right? So it'd be easy to discount this as well. Can't really do much about this. I'm not writing laws. Although I can think of some laws right now we would write if we were in charge of Thailand, right? <laughs> about burning and fires and smoke. We would fix it, right? We would fix it. Um, but we, most of us don't have that kind of influence. Most of us are not shaping national policy. Uh, but the reality is that, on, on the one hand, we should use our influence where we can in government. Uh, and, and these principles uh, would be profound for any country and any government to apply them, as we'll see them unpacked. Um, but more than that, uh, in our own personal lives, the, the principles also apply, actually, uh, in our families, in our, the communities where we live, in, in the workplaces where we function, in our ministry organizations, and in the church. Right? These are principles that are, are broadly universal and can be applied in many situations, not only for governments and countries. Um, so, so we get asked this question. Uh, what is your attitude toward those who break the law? Let's do a real quick self-check. Somebody is a criminal, somebody breaks the law. What is your attitude toward that person? But, but even more importantly, here's, here's a more pointed question. What is your attitude toward those who have wronged you personally? Not just people who have done some crime out there, but who have wronged you personally, either through some criminal activity uh, or just in a more interpersonal way. When somebody hurts you, wrongs you, damages something that belongs to you, what is your attitude toward that person? Grace, forgiveness, love, right? right. Um, it's interesting, I, I like in our, in our uh, Lent reading this morning, it talked about the whole thing of whips, and there's a line in there, don't let us use our whips to beat other people, right? We love that. There's something about human nature that we want people to suffer like we have suffered when they've hurt us, right? And is that God's way? Is that, is that what God's teaching here? Let's make sure when people wrong us, we make them suffer for their crimes. Is that what this is about? Um, certainly that's human nature. Um, second question, what is your heart, what is our heart for poor people? Do we kind of just ignore them? Do we kind of feel like, that's not my problem, Right? Uh, when we become aware of a brother or sister in Christ, somebody in our own community, in our own church fellowship or family, somebody that we know personally who's hit deep financial crisis, like what, what is our duty or obligation to that person? 
Is it kind of like, well, I'll pray for you, go be warmed and filled? Or are we supposed to actually do something to help them? Well, this passage will, will guide us on that, and the principles here will hopefully give us some insight into how we should be dealing with these, these social concerns or issues. So we start off with the, the account of this, uh, this guy who's got in a fight, and it's significant that he's not uh, the one man he's identified as not being fully an Israelite, right? His mom's Israeli, an Israelite. His father is Egyptian. And so because of his father's lineage, he probably would be identifying himself as an Egyptian, not an Israelite. So he's an alien. He's not one of the community. And that's, that's significant because the questions here that are raised, does this apply, do these laws apply only to Israelites or, or is it broader than that, right? And he gets in a fight. We don't know if it's a physical fight or disagreement, but it draws a crowd. Right? And these two guys are going at it and screaming at each other or beating each other. We don't know, but they're having this big disagreement. It draws a crowd. Uh, people are cheering one side or the other. No, it doesn't say that. I don't know. But, um, but in the midst of this, he curses the name of God, the name Yahweh. Right? He utters a blasphemy, a curse against God. So he, uh, in his... In his defiance and his rage, rages not only against this Israelite person, but he rages against God. And uh, the crowd standing by is shocked. And they, they've heard the commands, they've heard the laws. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And they know that this man has misused that holy, precious name of God. And so they, they know he's violated one of the Ten Commandments. So they grab the guy, drag him off to Moses, and they have questions. What do we do with this guy? He's not an Israelite. Um, maybe he doesn't identify, maybe he's not one of the covenant people, so is he free to blaspheme the name of God? And if not, what do we do with them? Like, what's the punishment for his crime? Uh, so Moses wisely takes it to God, and he waits for God to reveal to him what to, what's to be done. And uh, it says that, um, it says, The Lord said, Bring the man out of the camp, the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head. Now, if you've been going with us through the book of um, Leviticus, this should, this should be startlingly familiar. Because we've heard this over and over again, right? Uh, when did they lay their hands on the head of something? When they were about to sacrifice, make, make an offering and a sacrifice. And they would bring the animal sacrifice, the substitute, and they would lay their hands on it. And why? Because they were transferring guilt from themselves to that animal. And it's the exact same phrase here. And the idea is that as this guy uttered these blasphemies, uh, it was only not only sin on his part, but all those who heard it are in a sense contaminated with the guilt of this sin. Right? It gets in their mind. And even though they didn't intentionally say it, it's in there. And so they too, in a sense, have participated in that crime and in that sin. And so they're to come and take this guy outside the camp and all those who heard are to lay their hands on his head and transfer back to him the guilt, the sin. And then they are to take and they are to stone him to death. And he is to pay for this crime with his very own life. For this, there is no substitute. There's no one who, no animal that can take his place. And so... Uh, so that's, that's what justice demands. That's what God demands in this situation. Um, and, and at the end of it, uh, God gives uh, the principle. So, so Moses didn't know what to do, so God basically gives a principle to say, in the future, when you're handing out sentences, when anybody comes to you 
with a wrongdoing, where they've harmed somebody or caused loss to somebody, here's the principle by which you decide how you punish or how you sentence the crime. And this is what he says. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Right? Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good. Life for life. So in other words, uh, you pay for the animal. You don't pay with your own life, but you pay with an animal of equal value. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Right? Uh, the principle here is what's called uh, the principle of retribution. Now, uh, it, was, it was a formula, the eye for eye, tooth for tooth thing we're familiar with. Uh, it was a formula, and it was, it, it, it's not literal, okay? It doesn't mean if you actually poke somebody's eye out that the punishment is to get your eye poked out, right? It's symbolic. It's, it's a formula, and it's, it's a, a principle of, of, of justice that says whatever, whatever the price or worth of harm you cause to somebody else, you should pay that amount, Right? That's retribution. You should pay, you should compensate that person at an equal amount of the value of what they lost. So if they lost their eye, you need to decide the value of, a, of an eye, of losing your sight, and the person needs to pay uh, a, a fair worth uh, to cover that injury. If it's an animal, you pay the value of the animal. Obviously, if it's a bull, it's worth more. If it's a chicken, worth a lot less, Right? And so you, you cause loss, and you're to compensate that person for the loss. That's the principle that's, that's given here. Um, and so to do this, you have to, establish, um, you have to establish value or worth. And, and so he lays out this hierarchy of worth. Uh, at the very top of that hierarchy is what? Human life. Actually, there's one above human life. Even higher than human life. Right. How did this all happen? Because somebody blasphemed the name of God. Right? So at the very top of the hierarchy, the thing that's worth more than anything else is the glory and honor of God. Right? When somebody dishonors God, when they blatantly and willfully bring dishonor to the name of God, for example, cursing, and that's what blasphemy is. Blasphemy is bringing dishonor to God's name. It's harming it in some way. The penalty for that was death, right? Nothing was to be more valued and more cherished and more worth in Israel than the honor and glory of God. But then next, after that was human life, and then animal life, and last of all, uh, earthly possessions. I think it's kind of interesting how we in our justice system and in our thinking um, would rank uh, what's worth and value. In our world, oftentimes property and possessions are put right up there with human life, right? Like, uh, it's amazing how we want justice, you know. And, and there should be justice. But God's valuing is very different. And I think it's also extremely significant that at the very top, even more precious than, than human life was the glory of God. And I think it's sad that, uh, of course, the world dishonors God and they uh, mock his name and dishonor him every day. Uh, but what's sad is how, how easily we as Christians can do that in the church with so little consequence, right? Uh, when we sin, when, when we do things that are contrary to what we know God wants, uh, 
it, the Bible says, dishonors the name of Jesus. It brings his glory into bad reputation. And that's why the world all around points at the church and says the church is full of hypocrites and sinners and bad people. And we know that, right? We know we are sinful. We know we are not perfect. And we know it's by God's grace that we're his children. Right? And I'm not saying that we should pretend to be righteous when we're not. But here's the thing. When we sin, when we mess up, when we do stupid things and we, we know we've done wrong, is our greatest concern that we brought dishonor to Jesus' name or that we've embarrassed ourselves? Right? That I've damaged my own reputation. Sadly, far too often what we care about is our own name and our own reputation. And we give little thought, maybe no thought, to what it's done to the name of Jesus. Uh, you know, as I work with teams and people all over the place, and there's disunity and there's fighting and there's not getting along, um, I'm just amazed at how little we care that we are dragging down the name and glory of Jesus. Right? Um, this poor Egyptian learned the hard way, you do not dishonor the name of God. It will cost you your life. Now, I'm not saying we, we start executing people, <laughs> right? Uh, that would wake people up, I'm sure. Um, I'm just saying we should take it seriously, right? The most important thing to us, more important than anything, should be the glory and honor of God. And we should live to see his reputation preserved and protected and honored and lifted up. And when we sin against him, when we do things that bring dishonor to the name of God, our greatest concern, our greatest regret should be that we have, we have uh, degraded before the world and before others the name and glory of God. Um, but that's kind of a side note. <clears throat> Um, so, so here's the thing. So the principle here is retribution. Like what they were to get was a retribution. And, and the idea was, was to be fair compensation. So it didn't matter if they were an alien or an Israelite. Everybody came under the same standard of justice. But it was to be fair, right? So it was an eye for an eye. It wasn't a life for an eye. Like you accidentally broke somebody's finger, you die. No, it wasn't that extreme. It was, it was equal, right? There was, there was to be fairness and the... The sentence was to match the value of the crime. Um, now, um, how does this work for us? Let's apply this a little bit in our own life, in our own day and age. We don't, we don't get to pass judgment. Most of us aren't judges. Some of us may be uh, in a leadership role. We do get to pass judgment, so maybe this applies some. But how does this work in our own personal life? When somebody wrongs you, remember that was the question. When it comes down to it, when somebody has wronged you personally, what is your attitude and response? Well, I know for me personally, my first response, what I want to do is I want them to suffer uh, the same way I have suffered. Right? I want to get out my whip and I want to punish them and make them suffer. And a lot of people read this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and that's what they think. Like the Bible tells us we have a right to inflict suffering and harm on others when they've hurt us. That's justice, right? But actually, that's not justice. And that's not what God's talking about here. The principle is not punishment, it's retribution. And there's a difference, an important difference I'll talk about in a second. Um, and the problem is this kind, of, this kind of, when we have a heart to punish somebody, to make them suffer, like, uh, like they've made us suffer, it's selfish 
And it's not loving. Uh, here's an example. I just heard this past week. Uh, a church in the States I, I'm uh, involved with, their, their pastor made a mistake. And it wasn't immorality. It wasn't uh, anything that would get him fired. But it was kind of a serious thing with the church. And, um, and so he's being disciplined. And he's been given the opportunity to restore and, and go down a path of restoration. And he confessed what he did is wrong. Uh, he wasn't doing it intentionally, but he realized what he was doing was not honoring God. And so the church took that seriously, took God's glory and honor seriously, and they're disciplining this pastor. Uh, so he's on a couple-month kind of probation where he's not preaching, where he's kind of uh, on leave, I guess. Well, he visits people in the family, and he reconciles with, with, with people. And they're going through this very good and biblical process. And um, but, but somebody in the church said, and so during this time, the two months, he's getting paid, right? He's not, they didn't like fire him, so he's still getting paid. And somebody in the church said, that's just not right. I lost my job several years ago, and I had to suffer when I was unemployed. He should suffer like that, right? Yeah, that's pretty loving, right? Bless your pastor, right? Make that guy suffer. Right? Well, we want that, right? We like that. There's something about us that's, Satisfied when we see other people suffering like we've had to suffer. Right? Um, but, but that's not loving. Right? And God's punishment, God's, God's justice, is not about make pe- making people suffer uh, for the sake of suffering. Now, you could argue, well, the guy that got stoned to death, I'm pretty sure that was painful. Okay, I'll grant that. Uh, sometimes... Retribution, especially if it involves your life, will be suffering. But the goal was not suffering. Right? The goal was paying back what was lost. And this guy had defamed the glory of God, and the payment for it, the compensation, the price, was his own life. Right? He was paying a price. He was not being made to suffer. There's a huge difference. Um, so for us, as, as followers of Jesus, when people have wronged us, uh, the goal for us, and most of us know this, right? The goal is not to make that person suffer, right? Uh, and yet, how often we do that? Like, I think maybe that's why Facebook was invented, right? So that we can get in a public way and we can, like, blast people publicly for what they did to us. And we can go in there and vent. Apparently, that's what it's for. That's what it, a lot of it is, right? Oh, that person did this to me. And, da, 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 da. and we, we, we went to harm them. We went to beat them. We went to bring uh, damage to their reputation and their name. Right? If it's not on Facebook, maybe we do it to them verbally. We unleash on them our anger and our frustration and we beat them up. And it's satisfying for us. We feel better when we've vented on them. Right? That's not loving. Right? Uh, or we want to do something to punish them and make them pay for their crime. Make them suffer. Um, but that's not the way of Jesus, Right? Uh, Jesus says, you are to forgive those who have wronged you. You are to forgive your enemies. You are to forgive those who hate you. And Peter says, how many times? Seven times? Seven's a good number. We see in this passage, seven's a great number. Seven times. And Jesus says, no, I tell you, 70 times seven. In other words, over and over and over, you are to forgive. Because that's the loving thing to do. 
and because it's what God has done for us. We've been recipients of his forgiveness. And like Jesus tells the parable of the unjust steward, he was forgiven this incredible debt. And he should have gone out and forgiven one who owed him very little. We are to be people who forgive. uh, To honor God, uh, to do what's loving. But thirdly, for our own sake and our own benefit. Right? Uh, if you want to tie yourself up in bitterness and a bondage of uh, chaining yourself to your past hurts, then don't forgive. Best way in the world to keep you stuck in that past hurt and pain. Right? The way to free yourself from being chained to those things is to learn to forgive. So it's for our own benefit as well. So we don't, uh, we don't punish them, we, we forgive. But that raises the question, well, if we forgive them, does that mean we just uh, turn our cheek and, 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 and go the other way and, um, and just say, well, no problem, right? In fact, Jesus talks about this in Matthew uh, 5, 38 to 39. Uh, he says, you have heard it, that it was said, and he quotes this passage, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Right? So Jesus says here, forgiveness means we don't seek punishment and we don't seek an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. And it would appear that he's discounting this whole law. And he's saying, oh, you can just check that one off. But actually, that's not what he's saying. Right? He's not, he, because Jesus uh, upholds the law fully and completely. What he's saying here is that, that we don't use this verse to justify are punishing people who have wronged us. But does that mean we don't do anything? Well, no. Uh, The principle is, uh, and it's an important principle, that when people have wronged us, they they should be given the opportunity to make it right. That's what retribution is. They should be given the opportunity to make it right. And that's what this was all about. They were to pay back, to give compensation, to to in a sense remedy the damage and harm that they've, done, they've caused. So here's how this works in real life. In our real life, of course, again, most of us are not putting people in jail and making those kind of sentences, but let's talk about just everyday life, like parenting. How does this work in parenting? Suppose you've told your rowdy little seven and eight-year-old, nine-year-old boys, uh, don't play soccer in the house, right? It's quick kicking that soccer ball in the house. And repeatedly you've told them that, and then one day... It happens again. They're kicking the soccer ball in the house and they kick the ball and they break this most priceless vase that your great-great-great-great-grandmother gave to your great-great-grandfather, or the other way around, actually, back on the Mayflower, right? This priceless vase that you love, right? And they break it into a gazillion pieces, right? And you are so angry. Oh, do you want to make them pay and suffer for what they've done, right? But you heard this sermon, I'm supposed to forgive them, right? All right, I'm going to forgive you, you little brat. And, and, you, know, um, you forgive them, because you know that's what you're supposed to do as a loving parent, and you know it's the right thing to do. Uh, and is that the end of it then? You say, okay, I've forgiven you, it's no big deal. Well, no, right? No, they need to make compensation, Right? Uh, punishment uh, does not go with forgiveness, but retribution does. Right? You can forgive and still re- give them the opportunity 
to pay for that vase. It's sad it's going to take the rest of your life. You will owe me till you're 99, but I'm going to give you the chance to pay back for that vase, right? A real story with one of our kids when they were little, uh, three or four years old, they loved taking Kleenex out of the Kleenex boxes. And granted, n- not the value of a vase for sure, uh, but kept telling them, you can't do that. Quit doing that. It's wasteful. One day we come downstairs and the whole downstairs looks like it snowed. <laughs> There's, you know, how many Kleenexes are in a box? 250 Kleenex over the whole house, right? Oh, sad day, right? And um, you know, it's easy to forgive. It's just a box of Kleenex. But we said, okay, you have to, you have to buy another box of Kleenex. And for a three-year-old, it takes a while to save up that 60 baht. So they had to do some jobs, sweeping some floors, doing some dishes, I don't know, painting the house or something. Um, Earn some money. And then they got their 60 baht, and we took them down to Lotus, and they picked out the box and took it, and they paid the money to the cash, cashier and bought the box of Kleenex, right? They made retribution, right? And it's... It's, it's good for you when you can forgive, but it's also good for them when they can make it right. right? And that's the principle here, the principle. And God's justice is that we give people the chance to make it right. And this applies in all kinds of situations. I mean, I don't have time to go into all of it. But in, in the church, in the workplace, uh, in, in, in other relationships with friends, when they wrong you, we extend forgiveness. We, we don't punish them. But we can ask them, and we should ask them, what can you do to fix this? What can you do to make it right? Another example from p- parenting with kids that maybe will help us apply it. Kids get into a fight, and maybe your kids or your kid with some other kid, or maybe they're being bullied. And uh, nothing taps into my anger worse than when somebody I love is being bullied, especially when they're a kid. And when somebody I love who's young is being bullied, I want to go beat somebody to, I'm going to do the same thing to them, right? I'll show you what bullying is like. And I'm bigger than you, so I'm just going to you know, beat you up. Right? I'm thinking that's probably not the right thing for a pastor to do. <laughs> so I do tend to restrain myself, thankfully. Um, I have to forgive. And sometimes that's hard, honestly. It's hard to, to forgive, right? Um, but how we often handle this is we do what? We say, okay, you two need to, you know, say they're four years old, you two need to give each other a hug, and the one who's beating needs to say you're sorry. And that's a good thing. They need to learn forgiveness. So we say, you say you're sorry. Well, I'm sorry. And you give a hug. And then what do we do? A lot of times it's like end of story. Well, they made up and it's all good now. But you see, we failed, both of them, when we do that. Because forgiveness is only the first part. The second part is what? Retribution. You have to make it right. And you say to the one who was being the bully, what can you do to make this right? Well, I said sorry. Yeah, but that didn't fix it. That didn't solve it. That just meant you, you were sorry for what you did, but you need to make it right. So what can you do to restore that relationship, to show that person that you hurt them and that you want to compensate for them for that? I'm thinking, you know, like buying him an ice cream cone would be awesome, right? Or some chocolate. That always makes me feel better, right? There needs to be an opportunity to learn that they take responsibility for their action and they, 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 they compensate for what they've done wrong. And, and it's not just for kids, but as we grow up and we get into fights and we hurt people, there's a place for this, right? There's a place for this. And it's loving and it's just. 
right? Okay, second big category, and we're not going to go into great detail in this. It's a long chapter and a lot of detail. But it's the, it's the year of Jubilee, chapter 25, the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, uh, the nation of Israel got this giant, huge reset button, a giant reset button. And it was designed really to deal with the issues of poverty in their society, right? the social issues of the poor. Um, and the way it would work back then is uh, God, when they moved into the promised land, every Israelite family was given land. And land in proportion to the size of their family. Right? And, so, and that was the basis of their economy. And the goal here was that, that there would be economic equality among all of them. Right? That, that there wouldn't be the super rich and there wouldn't be the super poor. That there would be this range of kind of middle class people uh, who would be fairly equal uh, financially and economically. Um, now, of course, some people would be more industrious or just smarter, and they would have some gain. They would probably do better and maybe have more wealth. Some people would make bad choices or would just be lazy, and they would not do as well. Um, but that wasn't to go on and on forever. Right? And, of course, what happens with poor people is when they make bad choices or they're lazy, um, they can lose everything, and that's what happened in those days when you got in debt because you weren't handling things well. You would lose your land, uh, and eventually if you, your debt got bad enough, you would have to sell off your land. And then that, that became difficult for you because now the means of income is gone. Uh, so then things get worse, and, and as things get worse, um, you may actually have to sell yourself into slavery to pay off that debt. Um, and and uh, left unchecked, your children would grow up uh, as slave children. And it creates, and it begins this cycle, this downward spiral and cycle of poverty. And we see it all around the world. We see it here in Thailand, where poor people just cannot get, get out of that cycle of never-ending poverty. And so uh, God, in his genius, had a brilliant plan for this. And he said, here's the deal. Every 50 years, there's a giant reset button. And every debt gets canceled, and everybody gets set free. They are liberated, given liberty from their uh, bondage and slavery. And you get to start over. <clears throat> so once every 50 years, this means this could happen about once in your lifetime. Once in your lifetime. You got to start over uh, by canceling your debt and through uh, liberating from, from slavery. A cool thing. You get your land back. You get a fresh start you get to try again. And not only that, but here's, here's somebody who's got really bad luck. Uh, somebody has been in slavery, they lost their land, the year of Jubilee finally comes around, and they get their land back, they get their life back, and they <clears throat> start over. But what happens if through some just really bad luck or bad planning, within just a few short years, he's lost it all again? Like, that's just really bad luck, right? And you think, man, I've got 45 more years to go and I'm already 50. Uh, it's over for me, right? But there was an, another way. And it was through the kinsman redeemer. And actually, even before the year of Jubilee, the next of kin, your closest family member, had a duty and obligation if they were able to pay off your debt and purchase back your land. And if you were a slave, also purchase you out of slavery. And that's the story of Ruth and Boaz, right? Naomi had, had become landless and, and desperately poor. 
And so Boaz, the, the kinsman redeemer, redeems them. He pays, buys back their land, buys back Ruth and Naomi, sets them free. Right? Um, so poverty was never to be common among the Israelites. If they had practiced this, right, um, this would make you be a lot nicer to your family, for one, <laughs> knowing that someday they may have to bail you out. But also it just prevented this endless cycle of poverty. And it's brilliant. And it's really sad. I've never, I don't know of any country in the world where this is practiced, but it would be genius, right? Because it would prevent wealthy people from hoarding up all the land. And that's what wealth does. When, when, wealth, when you get enough wealth, nothing stops you from just creating these monopolies. And as people struggle and start to you know, not be able to keep their land, you start scarfing up land until you own huge amounts of land. And you're kind of unstoppable. And on the other end, you get into this cycle of poverty that you can never get out of. Uh, this would solve that, right? And it's genius and brilliant. It's, um, uh, it, it, it avoids the dangers of capitalism that lead to excessive greed. And it, it avoids the, the problems of communism that um, nobody's motivated because they have nothing personally to gain from their labor. So economically, it's genius. But again... It's all point a moot point because we can't do this. Like I wish I could say, let's start the let's start the kingdom of CCF, and I'm going to give you all land. Uh, we'll all be farmers, right? Um, so what do we do with this, right? How do we how do we deal with this? Well, two things that I think are helpful for us. One, um, throughout the Old Testament, throughout Exodus and Leviticus, God is calls Himself their Redeemer. He's their redeemer, right? Um, and we don't really know what this means or what this comes from until we come to this chapter. And we see that this is what God meant. He is their next of kin who redeemed his child Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And he restores them to their own land. Right? That's what it meant that he redeemed them. He bought them out of slavery. And it points, of course, to Jesus, who is our great Redeemer. Right? Like Israel, we have been sold in bondage. We owe a debt we cannot pay, a tremendous debt of sin. And Jesus came, and he is our Redeemer. Right? He is our next of kin, our closest relative who loves us and who is able to pay the purchase price to get us out of slavery. But... We know that our debt was, was, was incredibly large. And, and it was no small debt that Jesus paid with his own life and his own blood. Right? He didn't pay for it with gold and silver. He paid the ransom price with his very blood, with his very life. But he has given us a second chance, right? a fresh start, a new opportunity to be free from slavery and bondage and to be residents who are landowners, if you will, in his kingdom. Um, and in fact, in Luke 4, 18 and 19, Jesus uh, basically summarizes the, the goal of his ministry. And he actually quotes Isaiah chapter 61. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And it's interesting, uh, that, that line, to proclaim liberty to the captives, is a, a quote, actually, out of Leviticus 25, verse 20, where Moses wrote about the year of Jubilee. Uh, okay, apparently not verse 20. Um, I'm not sure what verse. But where, Jesus, where, where he says, um, uh, you are to proclaim liberty. In the 50th year, you are to proclaim liberty. And it was this idea of setting the slaves free. Right? point is that Jesus is our jubilee. Right? We have been set free, and he has come to give the ultimate jubilee, a year of rest, a year of freedom, a year of life. Um, second application, though, has to do with uh, our attitude towards the poor. In the New Testament, it's very clear, the principle, that um, God expects his people, his church, uh, the family of God, to move towards a place of economic equality. You see this in Acts chapter 2 and Acts Acts chapter 4, where it says, "The The wealthy sold their land and possessions, and they gave it to those who were in need. And the goal was to put the wealthy in poverty, but it was to raise the poor up to a place where there was economic equality among the believers. Right? We really do not like this teaching. Right? We in the West, and, and I've heard every kind of excuse why we don't have to do this. Right? But I'm telling you, it's a, it's a scripture, it's a principle that goes back to the Old Testament, that God's people are to strive and move towards economic equality. Right? There should not be poor among us. And maybe there shouldn't be the extremely wealthy. Now, I don't know how all that works, and there's a lot of practical questions about this. It's hard to help poor people. And Scripture is very clear that just giving poor people money is not the solution to their problems always, in fact, often. And so I don't know the wisdom of how this gets applied, but I think the attitude should be this. When we are aware of people who are in, in way worse off than we are in the church, uh, what are we willing to do about it to help them? Right? All too often, we have the attitude that it's not my problem. Right? It's not my problem. Um, three simple principles let's close with. Uh, we should be against excessive wealth and materialism. Right? It means even if you're wealthy, uh, we shouldn't live for extreme wealth and materialism. We should be generous in giving, uh, and the, the wealthier we are, the more generous we should be. But even if we're poor, uh, we should be generous. Right? We should be generous, uh, especially with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Another principle in this, toward, toward the poor, we should never do anything that makes their situation worse. He says, don't charge interest, don't sell them food at profit. Right? With people outside the body of Christ, uh, we should at least not make their situation worse by how we treat them. Right? And we should find ways to come alongside them and alleviate some of their struggle. And that's a biblical principle, and it comes from God's love for us. Uh, second principle, we should, we should uh, be moving toward complete trust in God. And we didn't have time to talk about this, sadly, but one of the other festivals or practices that he talks about here is, the, is this year of Sabbath. And I love this. 
the year of Sabbath was every seventh year they were to stop farming completely. They were not to plant, they were not to sow, they were not to harvest. They were to, for one whole year, just kind of live off the land. Right? Now, now picture doing this, right? Um, how would this go? Right? Like, how easy would this be to say, okay, this year... I'm just not going to take a paycheck for 12 months, right? And I'm just going to go out and live on the land, right? Anybody up for that? Well, that's essentially what the seventh year of Sabbath was, right? I know they could work, so it doesn't mean they couldn't sell pottery or, I don't know, you know, have some other sources of income. But the basis of their whole economy was farming. Nobody's farming. Nobody's selling. Nobody's getting revenue. So people aren't really buying you might be making pots, but nobody's going to buy them because they have no money. Right? Um, and the principle here was that they were to ultimately live by faith in God alone, not in the labor of their own hands and their own, their own brains. Right? And, and here's the thing. This, this is possible when we are generous towards the poor only when we have total confidence and faith in God. The reason we don't want to help the poor is because we don't really believe God's going to take care of us. And so every seven years, the Israelites got to practice this in a glorious way. They all got to be poor for a whole year. And just see how God would provide. And God said, I will take care of you. You put me to the test and I will provide day by day for all of your needs. And in the sixth year, I'm going to give you a double harvest. And I'm going to provide ahead of time. And during that year... I'm just going to take care of you and you're going to see me provide. And you're going to remind it that it's not up to you. It's up to me. Right? I think we need to do this. I think we need to move t- towards more trust in God. And, and, and here let me ask you a question. How can we put on ourselves self-imposed seasons of all-out trust? Right? What would it look like for you to have a, a year of Sabbath? or maybe a week of Sabbath, right? To put yourself in a place where you're going to just all out trust God. Like do something crazy. I don't know. Like give a whole month's paycheck to somebody. Right? Could you do that? I don't think I could, right? And I don't know that we have to. Um, But I think it's worth praying about. God, how could I learn to practice more trust in you by letting go of all the things I hold on to for safety and protection. Right? To really just trust you. Sometimes God brings us into our life. I think I told you a couple of years ago, in the period of just a few months, we lost 50% of our support. Um, and I didn't have a choice but to trust God. Uh, and I did have choices. I could have gone, I could have just left here, gone back to the States, panicked, you know, visited 900 churches till somebody felt pity and gave me money I didn't I just thought I'm just going to trust God and he faithfully took care of it right and and over time our support has has come back up some and God just showed himself faithful right Um, and here's the thing Jesus is our redeemer uh, and he knows what it's like to make himself poor 2 Corinthians 8 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty 
you might become rich. What are we really living for? Are we really living for the glory and honor of God? Are we really living to see Christ exalted in our life? If we are really living for that, then we will live all out by faith and total dependence on God. And it will be evident and visible in our life by how we treat uh, the people around us, the poor, the struggling, those who need our help. Uh, Because Jesus made himself poor so that we could become rich. How can we do any less? Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.